This podcast is brought to you by Maddox Lawyers, the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Hello, podcasters. Welcome to PX24 Today. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined as always by Peter Jewell. Now, today is an extra special podcast with one of the true planning legends of all time. He's one of the most genuine and humble people that I've come across and has an incredibly strategic brain, which allows him to really think outside the box. He's a true joker, and somehow, despite being one of my bosses, we still manage to give each other constant crap around the office. He's a Bombers supporter, sorry Pete, is in possession of a miniature steam train, and is an explorer in the truest meaning of the word. If you haven't guessed it by now, we're talking with Nevin Wadeson. Hi Nev. Hey, morning Pete, Jess. Now your career started out in the Metropolitan Border Works in 77, before you crossed over to Tract in 92, is that correct? Yes, so uh, 15 years in the state government and then 25 years here. What a career. <laughs> yes. Now, Nevin, you've got lots of uh, sides to y- your life. You're a part-time cyclist, explorer, holiday maker and planner. Mm. It's a busy time. Bits of that, yeah. Cycling was 15 years ago and um, yeah, it just helps keep you fit. And you enjoy wearing lycra. Well, it helps at the coffee shops to uh, <laughs> you know, get a table cleared. <laughs> Now, you have one of the most interesting stories I've heard in a long time around what led you into planning. Can you share this? Yes. um, We grew up in Frankston, lovely seaside town, certainly after it was sewered. I remember that happening in the uh, 60s. But In the uh, late 60s, Myers was going to build their shopping centre there. And so um, without any uh, announcements to the residents, about 72 houses were going to be compulsorily acquired for the car parking. And uh, my dad took a uh, dislike to that, set up a residence group and for five years ran the case against um, the compulsory acquisition. And that resulted in uh, obviously a delayed start to the car parking in Myers, but more particularly um, I learned about town planning. So from compulsory acquisition to a planning course. Is that where they got the idea for the castle from? <laughs> well, <laughs> certainly it was one of the earliest residence groups in about the early 70s and uh, I remember at night time after the police would lift out the barriers and let the cars go onto the few vacant blocks that were cleared, the residents would go and dig the poles back in at night. So there's a lot <laughs> of that sort of action. Planning insurgents. Now, Nevin, you're a bit of a go-to tourist expert. How did you come into this field and um, how do you see planning improving in terms of tourism development? With, with the tourism side of things, uh, obviously tracks a diverse um, business of, you know, our landscape, urban design, planning, all that mix. And so we've had the opportunity to work for some great clients like RACV and others. But along the way, it probably came from uh, my experience with my father involved in Puffing Billy since before I was born and helping uh, set that up and run it. And so with that tourism interest, it became, well, bums on seats, how do you deliver that sort of outcome? And particularly for regional areas and uh, locations, you can improve the local economy through tourism. So that's been an interest. And, and such things as rail trails and the tourism feed off from those things? Yeah, look, um, everything from the wineries uh, that people visit, the rail trails that uh, use old systems that were in place. Obviously, bridges have to be fixed. Um, but it provides a diverse range of 
you know, recreation activities from cycling, walking through to, um, you know, hotels and function centres. I find people just love discovering these places. Yeah, well, we've uh, we've had fun uh, this last year or so doing a master plan for Puffing Billy from one end to the other, and at the moment it's sort of got a really solid mix of people happening from Belgrave, but nothing at Gembrook. So trying to diversify the mix of uh, places that people visit is a key part of those strategies. So there was an article in The Age over the weekend which discussed comments by the ex-Vancouver chief city planner, Brent Tredarian, who suggested that Victoria's politics was standing in the way of good planning. What are your thoughts on this and how have you seen politics change the nature of planning over the last 30 to 40 years? Uh, look, with um, politics, there's been a bit of a pendulum. It swings one way or the other. Um, and every decade's really seen the need to uh, adapt to change. I felt it was more bipartisan when I started than it is now. And um, as uh, you know, there's a few instances of this. If if we haven't uh, adapted, you know, the way we do our planning, you know, if, we, if we'd slavishly implemented the 71 plan that everyone refers to, Melbourne would be a pretty ugly city stretched out from one end to the other. Mm. Um, so there have been lots of changes over time. And uh, from my point of view, um, reviews every 10 years are a pretty important part of our planning. And what was that comparison you were telling me about the other day in terms of the greenfield percentages then versus now? Yeah, it's pretty funny. If, uh, if you have a, a look at um, the way the metropolitan area was planned in the green wedges in the original days, um, there was an area of land set aside for corridors and growth that's probably not dissimilar to about... Uh, now it's in fact three percent bigger now than it was in 1971, and we're probably going to handle about double the population in the same area. So people talk about the loss of green wedges. It's just that they've been repositioned to make Melbourne more efficient over the last three decades. Mm. Just just taking it to a bit of a broader field as well, away from Victorians. There seems to be a lot of regulatory risk now associated with planning that wasn't there, where the rules just suddenly change overnight without consultation. Yeah. Um, look, I've seen some, in my opinion, some crazy stuff. Um, you know, the uh, early 2000s, we had um, long-term planned growth corridors cut in half because of a policy shift that everyone had to live close to a railway station. It simply wasn't practicable. Uh, and that's why in about the late 2009-10, those areas had to be put back into future growth. And that helped balance, you know, cost and delivery of land when it was added back for greater supply. Do you think it's possible to develop metrics to assess the effectiveness of planning systems? Uh, look, I find that or the... Do you think our system currently is effective? How do we measure it? I mean, I think it's a good mm. question. How, yeah. how do we know that the system is delivering? Well, look, uh, the planning success means, in my opinion, you have to have some appropriate housing, which is a mix of supply... You have to have appropriate education, employment opportunities, transport, recreation, all that stuff. But, and that's got to go across individuals' life cycles. So the method of delivering it and assessing it by metrics is bloody hard. Mm. Um, so I would say, uh, you know, I've just visited last year remote villages in northern Nepal where they're still threshing wheat to uh, create, you know, their food supply. And they're just getting ready for the onslaught of electronics and motorbikes from China. So, you know, it's it's one of these situations where you have to look at your own community and evaluate what it is that your community needs mm. to um, be seen as successful. 
Now, this is a bit of a sour question, Nevin, but uh, many, <laughs> many planners start with idealistic expectations and these fade with experience. Is it a bit like love? <laughs> uh, oh. We can deal with this one. <laughs> uh, we happily operate in a very political um, planning environment. So as planners, we've got to really recognise you know, the need for uh, great outcomes, but still we can only do that while we assess how the politicians actually need to achieve their outcomes and their imperatives. Um, but in terms of like love, surely a new government or a new council every four years, that's got to create a new spark it's in it all. Renewal, a renewal of love. <laughs> a new love. Yeah, we have new love through new councils and new governments. <laughs> and um, what development pressures give you the most concern currently? Or on the flip side, what um, trends give you hope? Uh, look, the, the, the pressures, in my opinion, are the timely delivery of you know, services and facilities. Um, particularly in all these new fringe emerging communities uh, that we've got and we're creating, which is all good, we need them, but they've got to be uh, serviced. So my concern is that, um, you know, we've now got processes where councils are trying to lock up decisions about things like contributions in advance of going to a panel process. And uh, so I have a great concern about that. So in terms of uh, trends that might give me some more hope, it's really the certainty of development contributions. I think that We've achieved uh, some some better runs since we've had certainty in contributions um, because that means that developers and others can factor them into costs and that'll maximise affordability. So that's what I look for as the opportunities. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one would be if we can get rid of so many overlays and schedules in the system, the whole joint will be a bit cheaper to run. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You, you, just going back to your days at Frankston and you mentioned when the sewer came on. <laughs> now, we're talking about new communities have to have everything in place before the residents move in. Now, it, doesn't that add to the costs? I'm not saying people shouldn't have water or sewage or things like that, but going back to your family's example, they could perhaps buy that place, your parents, at the outset, yep. because it was cheaper. Yeah, we were just lucky to survive swimming in the bay from Cannonock Creek, dumping all the effluent <laughs> into it. Uh, but once we did that, look, uh, you're right, this, but... This is a flip argument, isn't in it? In my experience, though... Um, the sooner you can tell the development community, they'll factor those costs into the purchases. And look, we had, uh, there was a massive amount of farmers who walked away in the last decade or two with massive amounts of money that should have been caught by GAIC if GAIC or similar policies had been acted a bit earlier. you just explain that? A bit earlier. So, yeah, if, uh, if you're going to identify growth areas and you need to provide services to them, you need to have some upfront infrastructure costs identified and captured and developers aren't dumb. They'll fight each other for a piece of land and just pay a little bit over the odds but if they pay too much over the odds in the first instance, it's never possible to get it back. But planning strategies are essentially this, you know, similar for the last 40 years. I mean, there's slightly differences. Sometimes it's corridor, sometimes it's concentric, whatever. Um, in that same 40 years, you would have noticed massive changes in the way society's structured and how people live. Has planning, is planning playing catch-up all the time with its citizens? Yeah, look, I think uh, certainly in the time since, you know, I was doing Planning 101, the people per household have um, dropped from probably 3.76 or something. I remember down to, you know, the 2.3s now. So that's over a 40-year period that uh, the numbers per house have dropped. 
And so that probably means we need more houses in the same area to house the same number of people, albeit that they probably use more water and other services at the time. Um, but, yeah, I think, um, you know, there's an opportunity for, uh, you know, people to uh, live in a, a more diverse way and have housing built in a more diverse fashion to satisfy that mix of needs and time. It's hard, isn't it, Evan, because planning is uh, essentially a conservative profession because it has to take everyone with it, but there's a lot of trends at the front that probably don't get accommodated for. Is that...? Yeah, look, uh, we had a crack with um, a fellow called Andrew Natale and ourselves. We are working on um, a concept called the third mode, trying to look at how to better integrate electric vehicles into new suburbs. And it hasn't really uh, been delivered yet. I think I'm still looking for a good suburb to take it on. But essentially it means within the same road reserves you could have slightly wider cycle tracks on one side, allowing for small side-by-side electric-type vehicles to commute for people. And that would also help... Um, we were looking at the idea of both teenagers having, say, a recreational licence, a bit like a boat, or, um, or the aged not needing another car or if they couldn't drive certainly electric vehicles. So those sort of initiatives can, you know, you can think them through, but it takes a hell of a lot to get them in. You obviously haven't listened to our other podcast, Ned. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, it's a good point, Nev. I mean, I've got a rec motorbike licence, which is trail bike licence. I can ride that in the bush, but I can't ride in the city. So yeah. There's adaptability, there's flexibility we need. But it's beyond just us as planners, it's the Transport Act. So you have to have the transport guys understand that, uh, you know, vehicles will travel. It might be a governed speed of up to 25 kilometres an hour or something, but that will get people around new communities particularly. You could retrofit older ones um, in a way that would drop the necessity for the second car all the time. In that sense, do you think um, planning controls promote uniformity? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. How, how do we get... How do we get some variety in built form outcomes without having a massive fight every time we go to council? Is it about selling uh, look, selling the concept better? Is it? I, I think what we've got is a need for some codification going on there. If, if mm. we're going to um, deliver the, the amount of housing and uh, the mix we need, uh, we've got to have some uh, pretty clear-cut rules that people can respond to. Yeah. Okay. City forms might be likened to different music forms and that's a theme in a couple of the earlier podcasts. For example, an orchestra to jazz fusion, harmony or rush. Can we allow for all types of music uh, in, the, in the city form? Well, yeah, uh, you know, again, I hate to harp on the uh, outer areas but... I, I Pardon the pun. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I do... The thing that concerns me about... The, a good example, I think, is... The use of our use of PSPs, the precinct structure plans, have been a fantastic addition. They have evolved from the old development plans, but the concern is we've now got effectively a cookie cutter approach across the whole of metropolitan Melbourne, based on the best thinking of 2010. And for our listeners outside of Melbourne, the same things are happening interstate as well. Do you think yeah, in the outer areas? I'm not as certain that the methodology of fringe development in the other areas are as uh, strongly prescribed as in Melbourne. But uh, probably the, the reason the example gives us uh, the concern that if the designs are all being mandated based on 2010 to 15 thoughts, as things evolve and change, will our system quickly enough adapt and 
drop off, if you like, if you like the uh, incorporated nature that we're currently working under. So, uh, uh, bargain there. Again, it's a conservative profession. We have to be. I'm not not bagging out planners here, but we live in. We have to bring everyone along. It's a very slow process, and people don't want to put their head above the parapet a lot of the time. Yeah, look, definitely. Uh, you know, we uh, we have to sit back and deal with councillors and governments, um, you know, week in, week out. So uh, there are a few people who uh, probably jump out there and, and push hard in the press. I think uh, we tend to try and do it by persuading, um, you know, those in power of um, the need for some flexibility to um, to adapt. And, you know, the apartment standards are going to be a good thing and uh, hopefully that'll lead to some greater variability in design of apartments but still with good amenities. So we're currently facing a housing crisis with rocketing housing inflation. It's been described as broken and cruel. How much responsibility should the planning profession bear and what are some of the solutions in your view? Uh, the planning profession's got to, to help our politicians and community understand where we're going. So, you know, there's been a few crazy policy shifts. I think I might have referred to it before, back in the early 2000s when the growth areas were sort of cut in half at that time and then they had to be put back again in the 2009-10 era. And you could watch the price of land in that instance rise when supply was cut. So current governments of both persuasions have been delivering increased supply, and that's the outer areas. I think they're trying now to provide increased supply in the uh, inner areas, and certainly uh, you know, fixing up the recent, you know, in Melbourne terms, the residential zones has been a, a benefit which should see more housing come on. You know, the stupidity of a two-lot cap on neighbourhood residential zones, um, regardless of the size of the lot, finally that's gone. So planners bear some responsibility for those policies. This, again, is about the regulatory risk we were talking about. But, Nev, I, I, I'm, maybe I'm getting old, but I remember a more golden era in planning where there was lots of productive studies being produced, some very good ideas, and people advocating those ideas for uh, enlightened building outcomes. Are those days gone? Uh, Tell me it's not true. I don't know. We, <laughs> well, we've, one of our young planners has been playing with the idea of tiny houses and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I think there's uh, there are certainly some people out there thinking about new initiatives. Um, but, you know, Plan Melbourne and then Plan Melbourne Refresh was uh, perhaps a Victorian-wide, or sorry, Melbourne-wide attempt to, uh, to move things along. Um, but... Yeah, people pushing for innovative new strategies. Uh, I don't see it as much as I perhaps used to 20 years ago. I've just been over to Japan and uh, been living in apartments over there. They're very small apartments but incredibly well designed um, without car parking, of course. Can't we borrow, can't we experiment more with those sort of things? I mean, I'd love to see some of those apartments I stayed in here. Yeah. Uh, look, I think we can. I think... Um, the comparison between our living standards and what we set as benchmarks for minimum delivery, you know, we're setting the, the bar higher all the time. And as you were saying before, you know, there are some early instances where housing was much smaller and people would add on to their house rather than have it all built from the start. Um, I think, uh, you know, internal designs have uh, probably changed obviously over a period of time to drop out things like corridors and uh, other spaces in houses to make more more efficient use of the space. So uh, that's where we're heading, I think.
This podcast is proudly sponsored by Song Bowden Planning. Song Bowden specialise in management of planning permits, planning scheme amendments and representation at VCAT and planning panels. Also thanks to SALT3 and the Victorian Planning Reports for their ongoing So we're told that information is the basic element of 21st century life. Can we talk to the idea that information wants to be free? Can you see a time when all planning information, past and present, is available? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that one. I can, um, uh, Jess, you'll know about it, but uh, we've been, one of our brainiacs in here, a guy called Mike Natale, has been building a uh, system of mapping which invests a whole lot of data in each property. So you can search a property uh, for a whole range of data. And so from that project we've called OneMap, it's... Uh, I can see it growing from that where basically you could create a planning scheme per property or per mm. groups of properties. So And a history of, of permits yeah. as well. And, and as we've... Again, the trouble is that our planning schemes here in Victoria are built with these incorporated documents and these things could be a couple hundred pages in addition to what's in the planning scheme. So you're right, you can have it all scanned and incorporated but searching it's the problem. So mm. I think that uh, we've got to get smarter about tightening up what sort of stuff we're putting into the schemes, uh, particularly the add-on incorporated documents. Particularly um, as we move into an electronic age, I suppose, as well, where we don't have bookshelves full of old incorporated documents sitting around. <laughs> that's right. And uh, sometimes it's not possible to find stuff. Uh, mm. I'm a bit of a Luddite and love stuff on my shelf, but when I ask people <laughs> for some things, I say, oh, I can't find it. So that's <laughs> the trouble, I think, with electronic use. I, I'm also thinking, Neb, that, you know, like planning... History is not just the controls, but it's what's gone on before us. It's like people have cut a path through the, the jungle. So you want to know what, why they went that way and what happened that way. So not just about the zoning, and the, but also if there was any planning history, if there was any applications, what was said about it, you know, w with the privacy, of course. But just that body, it's, it's like a library, creating this electronic library of planning past events. Yeah, as I say, I think we'll be able to incorporate that sort of information almost on a per property or per locality basis and uh, being able to, to head back in time and understand things, you know, um, I get uh, frowned upon when I pull out the 1971 plan and explain to people <laughs> that, you know, the only reason the Kingston Green Wedge exists is because of an airport and sand resources. There's no conservation or other values that were attributed to that area. So it is important to be able to understand, you know, in that case, there's a green wedge there. Everyone puts a value on green wedges at the moment, but it's not why that was originally there. And moving to the topic we talk about, AI, machines and machine learning, a lot of companies in the banking and finance sector are looking at AI as a competitive advantage. Uh, machine learning is rapidly evolving. Do you see it entering the planning world? Uh, is this robots or what are, we, what, what are AI machines? Well, it's like you talk to Siri. Okay. And Never loved Siri. Siri. I try to flirt with Siri but she said... <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, she, they're learning all the time. So if they get enough information, they will be a resource at your fingertips of all the planning knowledge. Yeah. I can see that happening certainly with things like code assess and all those sorts of things where... You know, the basic information is there. It's put there in response to a particular parameters or framework. Probably where I can't see it working is on that 
socio-community side where the politics of a given situation drive the need for a strategic response that maybe some machine can learn it, but I haven't seen it yet. And uh, I've been watching this. My, my old man used to run the Victorian Government Computing Service, so it was an interesting history I had as a kid too, watching that stuff evolve. Um, but I can't see it replacing uh, how we as planners assess you know, strategic... Maybe planning avatars and uh, with websites and that whole information. I, I mean, things are going to look very different in 10 to 15 years' time. Mm. Maybe it's my trip to Japan that's freaked me out. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and planning bots providing information. Yeah, as we said before, we're probably still, you know, I don't know whether an AI source can deal with a NIMBY. You know, they're two immutable forces up against each other, I suspect, because... Now, we're governed a lot by how NIMBYs react to uh, you know, new initiatives and I think um, uh, AI would have to be a very adaptable force. Maybe it's a battle of AI. <laughs> It'd be an Maybe interesting experiment, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. 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 But, uh, you know, we've, we've got ageing populations and different cohorts that we have to satisfy, uh, you know, the whole socioeconomic mix. But, yeah, could be possible. On to predictions now, Ned. Mm. The final quarter of the interview. No, no. <laughs> So there's been some suggestion that in 10 years we'll have 10% of housing constructed under prefab. Um, now this is probably touching on some of the stuff that um, Pete saw in Japan. Do you see this as a natural progression of housing in a market where many of us are being outpriced? Well, firstly that says that there's 90% that's not prefab. So yeah. I think 10% if that was a, a projected number, it's probably not that big. Mm. I remember years ago working with Bert Dennis where he told me that... Uh, Basically, they were selling bigger houses just by selling the airspace. And, yeah. um, you know, that was uh, designs were adapting to suit household needs. As I said, in my time, households have virtually, the numbers per house have dropped in half. Um, yeah, look, I, I, some prefab stuff's going to come. Probably a, tim, a lot more use of timber as well. Mm. Um, but I think each site is so different that designs are going to have to respond by site still for some time to come. What about as well with, um, you know, disaster proofing, you know, fires, flooding and that sort of thing? There's been a bit of work in the um, prefab area, I suppose, about constructing houses that are fireproof and flooding proof. Have you seen that? Yeah, that, where the standards are set for the various um, bell ratings, the fire rating system for dwellings and they can be different levels. Uh, yeah, that would be probably quite good if you're building a house that's got a certain bell rating to achieve that you could pick stuff off the shelf that's designed for that particular rating amongst the three or four key ratings. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that'd be a bonus. Yeah, we have special powers at Planning Exchange and we're going to make you Planning Minister for the day. What would you change? Oh, well, there's uh, <laughs> been a, a band of us for some decade or two talking about the problem we have where amendments... You might have the best amendment in the world, but if you can't get past the given council or government, uh, it might be consigned to the bin. So uh, I think I'd introduce a system that enabled a simple review mechanism. And so if uh, if my amendment was crap, well, to the bin it goes. But if there's some bonus or element to it that was beneficial, it should be exhibited and considered in the normal way. And uh, probably the other thing would be in a bipartisan way, bash the two heads together and fix up some of the anomalies from the original uh, urban growth boundaries around both towns and cities in the state. I haven't mm -hmm. talked much about regional, but have a play in the regional areas and try and encourage growth there too. Mm -hmm. And what do you know now that you didn't know five years ago? 
Oh, I didn't know Essendon was going to have such a rough trot. Um, <laughs> They're back on the way up now. <laughs> um, didn't know Plan Melbourne would be refreshed so wow. soon. Um, also, I, I think I mentioned before, the neighbourhood residential zones, they had to be fixed, but when they were going to be fixed. Mm. Um, but all, and more seriously, it's probably the one thing that comes to mind is the energy supply issue being questioned. Um, that's mm. phenomenal. You know, it's a disaster. In, uh, I remember uh, being told about a rezoning I was doing in the Latrobe Valley about 10 years ago. Coal is king and this rezoning is consigned to the bin because coal is king. But uh, anyway, uh, and then there was the period of impositions on wind farm production. Now, you know, you've got to have a mix of all of these things. So that's the thing that I, I probably didn't see coming, the energy risk that we're facing. Mm. And uh, how do you refresh and relax? Where do you go oh, look, with look, the world? I suppose the key is uh, planning some family trips, so balance those out. Maybe go to uh, Northern Territory, Uluru this year. Um, but also with some friends, how to flog ourselves up some mountains in Europe for a couple of weeks. Well, thank you very much, Nev, um, Nevin, and thank you very much, Jess. And uh, before we go, listeners, um, uh, for those who don't know, Jess was awarded the Female Achiever of the Year um, by the Planning Institute of the Women's Planning Network. So we're very, very proud of Fantastic her result. at Planning Exchange. <laughs> so thank you, listeners. I hope you enjoyed this. Let me take this time to apologise For anything I did that made you think otherwise I am not the one, I'm troubled and fun Not looking for love But I guess you're